Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to the April edition of the Vice Magazine podcast, your definitive monthly guide to lightning information. I'm Ellis Jones, the editor-in-chief. While many editions of our magazine are themed, this one is not. But if you stare long enough into the looking glass on this month's cover, maybe you'll find one. Here's our table of contents. Photo editor Elizabeth Renstrom explains our trippy cover image and the photographer responsible for it. Basically, like if you decided to trip on ayahuasca over Thanksgiving with your folks. That's how I like to describe it. Haisam Hussein shares some interesting facts you may not have known about international trade. We've had a significant trade deficit with China for years now, and Trump's been looking to change that. Jason Leopold, our Freedom of Information Act expert, reveals new information on the woman dubbed by the media as the D.C. Madam. Paul Free also claimed that she didn't know the names of her clients, but she did have their numbers. Chris Carroll chats with the writer Ross Ufberg about his trip to Ukraine for what's been called the Hasidic Burning Man. They're there because they feel a closeness, I would call it a direct line to heaven. Erica Allen interviews journalist Lauren Euler on what it was like to profile Patricia Lockwood, who some call the poet laureate of Twitter. The only thing I remember is she said she wants to plant the first lady so that her head is a sunflower and I can't do anything else to her or something something because... All of her teeth are broken from eating diamonds. I mean, she's just, you know, very surprising. Finally, Roberto Ferdman, a correspondent at Vice News Tonight, takes us through the journey that led to the discovery of his artifact. I won't tell you what it is, but here's a hint. It's really small. It's about the size of the nail on your pinky, and it's plastic, and sometimes it ends up in your mouth. Let's start from the top. Here's Elizabeth Renstrom with what went down behind the cover. Michael Northrup is the artist behind our April issue cover this month. And in the cover, you see a crazy, colorful rainbow room contained in a very decorative mirror hanging on a floral wallpaper you'd only find in your aunt's house. Basically, like if you decided to trip on ayahuasca over Thanksgiving with your folks. That's how I like to describe it. At this time in his career, Michael was playing a lot with on-camera flash and gels, and he wanted to make an Alice through the looking glass scenario by shifting this everyday scene into a mysterious moment. We chose this image because, like I've said before, I'm always trying to get our audience to look closer and question what's happening in the image. I think it's fun to challenge how, yes, photography is a document to something that happened in real life, but that doesn't mean you can't mess with the viewer's head through artistry and a sense of humor. I think that's what I like most about his work, most of which is very autobiographical and yet incredibly absurd. 
We featured another selection of his family images in the Vice 2012 photo issue that I wanted to revisit because this man is sitting on an incredible archive. How much do you know about global trade? It's at the center of many political debates right now, and as our economy shifts, it can be difficult to keep up. But our infographic wizard, Haisam Hussein, is here to explain how it works. Hi, this is Haisam Hussein, back to talk about this month's infographic, and this time we're focusing on world trade. The topic of trade has been in the news a lot lately, especially in relation to the US and China. Trump's been talking about renegotiating the contracts we have with our partners and possibly imposing tariffs on imports. He's specifically focused on Chinese imports because we've had a significant trade deficit with China for years now, and Trump's been looking to change that. He and the Chinese leader Xi Jinping recently held meetings to go over their trade policies, but so far it's not clear what the overall outcome is. We do know that both leaders are trying to avoid a trade war, so one of the concessions made by the Chinese is to once again accept imports of beef from the U.S. That's something that hasn't happened since 2003, after we had an outbreak of mad cow disease in the state of Washington. The United States buys and sells a lot on the world market. It's one of the top three trading countries worldwide. And not surprisingly, so is China. Germany makes up the third spot, and together those three countries traded $11 trillion worth of goods in 2015, and that made up about 30% of total trade around the world that year. The vast majority of the merchandise that's traded internationally, about 90% of it actually, is delivered by cargo ship, though rail also plays a big role. And speaking of rail cargo, one of the longest cargo trains ever operated in Australia in 2001. It was made up of 682 wagons and it stretched for four and a half miles. The whole thing weighed almost 100,000 tons and it took about 10 hours for it to move 170 miles. That was a look at this month's graphic in the magazine. I'll be back next month to talk to you about youth activism. Does the name Deborah Jean Palfrey ring a bell? I doubt it, but what about her nickname, the DC Madam? I'm sure you remember her. And here, Jason Leopold talks about new revelations into the U.S. Postal Service's investigation of the scandal that rocked Washington. One of the biggest scandals to rock Washington, D.C. happened a decade ago when it was revealed that some prominent lawmakers and government officials had allegedly been customers of an escort service called Pamela Martin and Associates. The service was operated by Deborah Jean Palfrey, a woman better known as the DC Madam. Here's how it all went down. In 2006, a two-year investigation conducted by the United States Postal Inspection Service and the IRS came to fruition when the government alleged that Palfrey's DC escort service was in fact a high-end prostitution ring that she had operated via phone and email from Northern California since 1993. The so-called DC Madam, however, insisted that her business provided, quote, legal, high-end, and erotic fantasy service, and that she had no idea her escorts had sex with customers. Palfrey also claimed that she didn't know the names of her clients, but she did have their numbers. And in March 2007, after having been charged, she turned over a list of nearly 10,000 phone records to ABC News spanning four years. (laughs) 
The network only revealed a few of the most prominent officials on Palfrey's client list, including Republican Senator David Vitter, Harlan Ullman, an advisor to the Pentagon, and Deputy Secretary of State Randall Tobias, who resigned when details of his use of escorts surfaced. Most scandals come and go from the collective American consciousness, but Palfrey was back in the news last year when her former attorney, Montgomery Sibley, tried to get the U.S. Supreme Court to allow the release of records from Palfrey's escort service, saying the information in Palfrey's records could impact the presidential election. The Supreme Court, however, denied his application. Palfrey's brief reappearance in the news reminded me that I had not filed a Freedom of Information Act request for Palfrey's file from the FBI, the IRS, and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. So I fired off an application, and about seven months later, the FBI sent me 54 pages, but they withheld 33. Let me take you through three items in the documents that stand out. A question you may be asking is, what does the U.S. Postal Inspection Service have to do with the takedown of an escort service? The document I'm holding right now explains why. It's a letter written on December 3rd, 1986 by a postal inspector. It alleges that Palfrey may have violated a federal law by mailing threatening communications to a U.S. Navy officer. If you view this document online or in the magazine, you'll notice one thing at first glance the repetition of the phrase B7C redaction. That's because the name of this officer has been removed on privacy grounds. According to this document, Palfrey became, quote, emotionally attached to the naval officer. She mailed the officer a number of letters in which she tried to, quote, establish a marriage. And when the officer rejected her attempts, she threatened to, quote, destroy him both professionally and personally. This page of the document shows that the case ID includes 333. The triple three is an FBI classification code for legal advice and opinions. And the letters, quote, WF, end quote, that follows refers to the Washington field office. That makes sense since this subfile notes that an FBI agent in the Command and Tactical Operations Center was subpoenaed, demanding the production of documents in Palfrey's criminal case years later. But in what amounts to a new revelation, the file goes on to note that the FBI, quote, is not one of the investigative agencies involved in this prosecution, which means the Bureau should not have to produce any documents. Looking here, it seems that this subfile was part of the file the FBI had on Palfrey in relation to her threats against the Navy officer, who, in addition to the Postal Inspection Service, had also contacted the FBI about the matter. So the only document the FBI appears to have had was a January 15, 1987 complaint form involving the Navy officer. The officer called the FBI and said, quote, he had been receiving slanderous letters from Palfrey marking the first time that Palfrey's case came to the FBI's attention. In April 2008, a jury in the U.S. District Court for D.C. convicted Palfrey of federal racketeering, money laundering, and two counts of using the mail for illegal purposes pertaining to her escort service. She was 52 years old at the time. 
I met with Palfrey several times before her sentencing, and I spoke with her by phone as well. She had reached out to me, and she claimed that in addition to phone numbers of CIA officials who used her service, she had top secret documents implicating a CIA officer in a kickback scheme that involved government contracts awarded to his friends. But Palfrey never came through with the documents, and I'm not sure she ever had what she claimed. Her last words to me during a telephone conversation were, quote, Jason, they'll never take me alive. On May 1st, 2008, two weeks after her conviction, Palfrey was found hanging by a metal bar in the shed near her mother's home in Tampa, Florida. She left two suicide notes. Palfrey, who referred to her prosecution by the government in one suicide note as a, quote, modern day lynching, wrote that she could not spend six to eight years behind bars. I'm Jason Leopold reporting for Vice Magazine. You've heard of Burning Man, that yearly gathering of people who try to live like our tribal ancestors in Nevada's Black Rock Desert. But have you heard of Hasidic Burning Man? It's the annual celebration of the Jewish New Year in central Ukraine. That's not its actual name, but writer Ross Uffberg traveled there to investigate the similarities. Chris Carroll talked to Ross about his experiences there and the lasting impressions it's made on him. The Hasidic Burning Man. What is it? It's not really a festival, though it feels like a festival at times. It's a celebration of the Jewish New Year, which happens around September every year. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, so you'll have variations in timing. But it usually happens around September, October in the secular calendar. And it is a group of people, anywhere from 30 to 60,000, depending on what source you're citing, 30 to 60,000 Hasids, Jews of all stripes and colors, who descend on this town called Uman in kind of the belly button of Ukraine. It's an old industrial town. doesn't have much going for it except for this three-day Jewish holiday. And they go to pray at the tomb of a revered Hasidic leader whose name is Rabbi Nachman. He's called Rabbi Nachman of Breslau, Rabbi Nachman of Uman. Breslau and Uman are two towns that used to have large Jewish populations. And now, Uman, at least, the population is pretty transient. It's people who come in for three days and then leave. Why is it called the Burning Man of the, of the Hasidic world? Well, the Hasidic world is not exactly known for its raging parties. So this is probably the closest the Hasidic world gets to a big kind of gathering festival. I mean, there are tombs all around the world. There are quite a few in Ukraine, actually, where people go to pray, but nothing as concentrated or as well-known or really as wild as this. What's interesting about Breslov Hasidism is that it attracts a whole range of people who you wouldn't normally think of as ultra-Orthodox Jews. So you have a lot of former drug addicts, a lot of former deadheads, a lot of people who were not very observant or were reform or conservative who came to this kind of spiritual enlightenment and join the Breslov Hasidim, who are pretty welcoming. It's a kind of big tent group, and they welcome kind of the outcasts, the untouchables, who many other ultra-Orthodox groups would not be so keen on welcoming into their fold. How did you first hear about this? <laughs> I first heard about this from the Israeli, where he runs hands down the best deli in Scranton known as Abe's Kosher Deli. And 
And my family lives in Scranton, and I'd been going there for years. And one day he said to me that every year for, I don't know, the past five or 10 years, he's been going to Uman as a basically a, a caterer. He got hooked up with a friend of his from Israel who cooks for like 30 young guys who go with their rabbi, and they rent a few rooms in Uman in the area of Pushkin Street. And so Jerry Mizrahi is, is the guy's name, the deli owner's name. And he goes there and for like 36 hours, he doesn't see daylight. He's just cooking for these very hungry young men who are there to pray and not to be bothered with things like how they get their next meal. Can you describe a little bit what you saw there, especially on the first day that you got there? I wasn't really sure what to expect. I'd heard all sorts of crazy things. And when I got there, it was the day before the start of Rosh Hashanah. All the Jewish holidays start at sundown. So it was actually the day leading into the sundown when the holiday would start. So I got there maybe 10 in the morning and you get to the bus station and there are all these signs in Hebrew, in English, in Ukrainian, in Russian, but mostly in Hebrew that advertise rooms, advertise money changing services, advertise kosher food. And it's about a 10 minute walk to the area that centers around Pushkin Street. And it is a complete madhouse. You can hear it from blocks away. There's kind of techno religious music. There are thousands and thousands of people who are doing last minute grocery shopping. They're getting falafel. They're buying pizza. They're buying shawarma. They're buying religious articles. They're buying squirt guns. There's like an absolutely crazy bazaar on this street that maybe goes on for a half a mile. And it's just, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And when I was there, the weather was pretty nice. So it was just sweaty and loud and chaotic. And actually, I stopped to watch a Hasidic rabbi. He'd set up a disco, kind of an open air discotheque. And he was playing techno and chanting and wearing green sunglasses. And people were dancing in a circle. And these two Ukrainian guys, these two young, basically peasant boys walked by with a sheep and they were trying to sell the sheep, see if anybody wanted to slaughter the sheep for the holiday. So it's it's like a complete otherworldly experience. But one of the things that I'd heard, which which I didn't actually find to be completely true, was I'd heard that you go there and there are basically wall-to-wall prostitutes, that young women from all over Ukraine and even other countries like Moldova come by train, by bus for this three-day festival because it's 99.9% men. Nobody comes with their wives. There's actually no place for the women to even pray in public. So it's an, it's all men. And, you know, where there are men, there will be women. Uh, so I had kind of expected to find a bazaar of the flesh, but didn't really find that. I think, sure, there were women there who were working as prostitutes, but no more than in your town or my town. I was surprised. I'd also heard there was a lot of drugs, which, yeah, there a lot of people smoking pot and a lot of drinking and a lot of dancing and chanting and shouting and overall revelry. The Breslov Hasidim are known for finding space each day to do quiet meditation. And this certainly was not the place for that. I mean, you couldn't hear yourself think that it was so loud. So I think probably at one point, maybe 10 years ago, when there were 5,000 people going, you could find a little place in the forest or a place in the park or a place down by the water where it was quiet and you could kind of talk to God 
at this point, that's not really an option. I mean, you can still talk to God, but you're having a, a pretty loud conversation. Spiritually, what is it that draws people to this pilgrimage? What are they there to get? They're there because they feel a closeness, I would call it a direct line to heaven. And whether that line goes through Rab Nachman, who's buried there, or whether they feel that it goes straight to God, I think that's up to each individual. Or even, uh, I think there are people there who might not really care particularly about Rab Nachman, but they're there because they feel a certain camaraderie, a certain spiritual kinship with 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 other Jews all being in one place. You don't find that very much. Jews don't do pilgrimages the way, say, you have pilgrimages in Islam or Christianity. How come? Uh, That's a good question. There's not really a tradition outside of Hasidism of really going to a place at the same time. I mean, people go to Jerusalem and pray in Jerusalem, but I can't say. I mean, maybe it's because Jews are so dispersed. You know, you have people say, oh, I like to go to New York for Passover, but you're one among 8 million people and it's not all Jews. Whereas in Uman, it's, I imagine what it is like to be in Mecca, I mean, to a much smaller degree, but you're surrounded by really only Jews because Ukrainians aren't allowed in the area, actually. So I think people go to feel like they're part of a large group and they all have kind of the same, well, Many have the same objective, which is intensive prayer and a communion with God and spiritual leader. You mentioned in your piece that the history of Judaism in Ukraine is not a happy one. You can feel the tension if you're looking for it. I took a taxi from, I think it was from the airport to some destination, and I asked the guy, the driver, you know, are you very busy this time of year with Hasidim? pilgrims coming to Ukraine, and he said, I don't pick them up because they're rude or they always try to get a better price. And you can extrapolate from that what you want. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that they're not all on their best behavior, but it certainly goes both ways. There's definitely a feeling that all these religious Jews are kind of visitors is a nice way to put it, you know, interlopers, people people who come and take over the city, which they do. I mean, you, you have a city of 80,000 people now accommodating half that or accommodating 50,000 tourists. So there's tension and past slights aren't forgotten. I mean, for instance, you know, there are a lot of Ukrainians who resent some of the Jews because they were able to get out of the Soviet Union in the 1970s. And if you were a Orthodox Christian, I mean, that builds up from that. They moved to America and the American economy is doing much better than the Ukrainian economy. So they come back with money. They can build these, sometimes they live in shacks, but sometimes they live in these luxury flats in the middle of the city. And so it's a it's a it's a hard dynamic to kind of grasp because there's so many different things going on, but it's not always friendly. You sort of witnessed less than admirable behavior basically both from the pilgrims and from some of the townspeople and the kind of administration within the town itself. I was walking with Sasha, the photographer and when you're walking with a photographer, people don't think you're Jewish because you're not allowed to use a camera or use a recorder on the holy day. So people thought I was just a reporter. And so if I was just a reporter, then they wouldn't imagine that I spoke Hebrew. But I do speak Hebrew. So I was able to hear things that weren't intended for public consumption or for Gentile ears. And at one point, these kids were walking by a police van and these Ukrainian policemen were just kind of hanging out. 
And one kid yelled at him, said, Kelev Tov, Kelev Tov, which means good dog, good dog. And the Ukrainian policeman, having no idea he was just insulted, you know, smiles and waves back. But that stands out to me as sadly emblematic of the way a lot of people behaved, and especially the children. I would say that the children are kind of cut loose, and children anywhere will kind of gravitate to that kind of behavior. But there, as somebody said to me, you know, you have several thousand children and their mothers are nowhere to be found. So they're running around and there's no supervision. And you do see that kids insulting policemen, insulting the non-Jews, speaking about them, you know, as if they're kind of these dumb wooden blocks. So that was pretty disturbing. Patricia Lockwood became widely known in 2013 after a poem of hers titled Rape Joke went viral on Twitter. You could say her work pushes the envelope while perhaps even redefining the envelope itself. Writer Lauren Olier spent a day with her in Savannah, Georgia, drinking peppermint schnapps and discussing her new book and the role of women in the eyes of the media. Here's Lauren describing the experience to Erica Allen. Warning, this discussion involves the subject of sexual assault and may be sensitive for some listeners. Lauren, tell me a little bit about the lead of this story. It's got a very particular perspective. Yeah, so when I picked Patricia up at her house in Savannah, she mentioned that she had never been interviewed in person by a woman before. And she said, well, they have these insane physical descriptions of you that they always sort of, it's almost like they have to use crazy adjectives and crazy adverbs. And they're like, she looks like a beautiful pixie skipping through the forest. And she basically said, you should try to do some kind of crazy physical description of me and see if your editor will buy it. And I was like, well, my editor's a woman, so I don't think that she will. And she was like, just like one thing. And so I decided to play a prank and do a whole big paragraph of physical descriptions of her because she does talk about writing physical descriptions a bit in her memoir and she she acknowledges that they're quite fun but perhaps not the most illustrative project for speaking truth i guess and it was quite a prank cuz i did start reading and felt like oh wow uh not what i expected and then got to the second paragraph and felt this enormous sense of relief that this was a joke and a funny one once I got to the punchline, but that I did feel a little bit like, oh, I don't know if this <laughs> this famous poet, which, you know, there are not that many modern famous poets. And so I felt like this lady might be offended. <laughs> if I call her a distractingly beautiful cartoon character. Yes, yes. Yeah. But hopefully readers get past the yeah. First paragraph. I mean, I never really describe how people look. I think it has more to do with how you go through the world if you're a woman than if you're a man. She suggested that we go to this cemetery in Savannah, where she's not from Savannah. She's from Indiana, but lived all over the Midwest in her childhood and adolescence. But she lives there now. And we had a picnic, and I told her to bring one item of food or drink that she felt represented her and so she brought a bottle of peppermint schnapps so we were drinking the peppermint schnapps and having 
a fun time. Yeah, it sounds like it was nice. It was it was nice. There's no open container law in Savannah, so you can drink in the street. But we were sort of like, are the ghosts going to be mad that we're drinking mm. in the afternoon on their grave? And she was very well aware of the different grave sites and was sort of like, I know this one, we have to go there. I know this one, we have to go there. Her relationship to Savannah is something that is a part of the Priest Daddy memoir because what sparks the book is that she has to leave Savannah mm-hmm. and move back in with her folks. It's hard to talk about her memoir because it has like 800 different parts to it, but the loose framework of it is that she's writing a memoir during this eight-month time frame where she had to move back in with her parents who live in Kansas in a rectory of a church because her father is a Catholic priest. So she bounced around all through her 20s. She didn't go to college and ended up living in Savannah with her husband. And they really love Savannah. It's a very charming, nice town, lots of stuff to do. And she was starting to get a little bit of recognition as a poet, as a writer, but not that much. And certainly when you don't have a college degree and don't want to do anything but write, and she was taking like waitressing jobs or bookstore jobs when it was necessary, but trying to really focus on writing, I think it's quite hard to make ends meet. And her husband was supporting her, but then he had to have this horrible eye surgery so then he couldn't work for a while and they had to go home and so she decided that she was gonna write about her family life through the lens of this experience because I mean it's like always terrible to have to move back in with your parents when you're 30 I imagine but particularly bizarre when your parents live in a church and like hang out with nuns all the time yeah sounds like she has quite an interesting relationship also to yeah, her parents. Yeah, she sort of, she wouldn't say that she was an atheist, and I don't know that she is, but she thinks that saying she's agnostic is more appropriate, but she sort of loses her faith around the age of 18, and she deals a lot in Priest Daddy with the priests, the pedophilia scandal, the massive, you know, cover-ups of those issues and is she's sort of stunned by that and doesn't really know what to make of it and she also deals with having grown up going to anti-abortion protests when she was like five or six (laughs) which is wild you mentioned that you guys talked a bit about politics i know that she's got some new work that revolves a little bit around the current political climate. Recently, she came out with a new poem for the all called The Pinch, and it just describes all of these very sort of psychedelic, transfigurative, violent acts, basically, that she wants to perform or enact upon the current administration. Mm. It's very characteristic of her style in some ways. It's very specific things are happening to very specific body parts, but it's also quite violent and angry, which is not necessarily emotions she's ever really directed outward, which she says as much in the poem. She said, I'm used to feeling this way about myself, but now I just want to, to like, uh, the only thing I remember is she said she wants to plant the first lady so that her head is a sunflower and I can't do anything else to her or something, something, because... All of her teeth are broken from eating diamonds. I mean, she's just, you know, very surprising. Talking about the idea of violence, that she's not usually used to directing outward, I guess maybe we should start or go back to explaining a little bit about how 
Patricia Lockwood rose to the collective consciousness and that she's come to us through Twitter or to, mm-hmm. to many people through Twitter for writing a poem that is about something that's super violent, but also one would think there would be a lot of anger directed outward, but it's maybe not so much the case in her sort of most famous poem so far. Yeah, so you're talking about Rape Joke, which is this poem that came out in the summer of 2013, and it went, for all intents and purposes, viral. That alone made people say, who is this woman writing this viral poem that so many people are connecting with? And it was a sort of autobiographical poem about her rape, but also about rape jokes in general, because there's always sort of feminist conversation about rape jokes and like, is it okay to make a rape joke? And is it not? And what I think struck so many people about it was that she was fierce and condemnatory, but not in a stale or obvious or even straightforward way or in the way that most feminist writing tends to be when dealing with subjects like rape. And It wasn't an opinion piece. It confused people, but it was also quite funny. And she personified the rape joke. I think she says at one point it had a goatee and like, that's funny. And I think from there, she started getting a lot more opportunities and a lot more recognition, a lot more chances to do writing, which was never clear to her that she would ever get those opportunities because she had this crazy religious upbringing where she had four or five siblings and her father was a priest (laughs) and she didn't get to go to college. She got into St. John's in Maryland and then her father said, we don't have the money, you can't go. So she didn't get to go. She met her boyfriend, who's now her husband, on an online poetry forum. And then they were sort of traveling the country, being writers, trying to make make their lives work. And then finally, I think partially because of that online poetry community, which was quite new when she started participating in it, she became as mainstream as you could be as a, as a very successful literary writer, not even poet, just, you know, she's the top. You asked about her body and about violence and anger and and these things. And I think that she usually approaches it from a very sort of distant perspective. Like she's analyzing basically what is happening to her and what is happening to other people and what is happening in the culture. She's not usually expressing a desire to hurt or change or affect the world around her. She's great at naming her poems. She's great at naming her poems. She's great at come I don't it's not a metaphor per se. It's like a transfigurative metaphor. The metaphor I feel like mo- is moving through her character. Like the metaphor like moves through the body and into the world almost. And she's also using a lot of metaphors from her childhood. She says The counselor to the president came on. I thought I am going to unbend you like a Barbie knee until you make that creak. I don't know if you know that sound, but I feel a very strong connection to that sound, and I understand exactly what that means. And it's funnily violent. Vice employees are constantly flying across the globe, covering stories that enlighten, warn, and maybe even inspire. When they come back, they often bring a part of their travels with them, like little artifacts they picked up along the way. 
This month's artifact belongs to Roberto Ferdman. Here's his story. So I was in New Orleans in Baton Rouge shooting a story about charter schools. There's this school for dyslexic kids in Baton Rouge, and the state has had a really hard time figuring out whether it's good or not because there's no agreed-upon metric for judging all schools. A lot of charter schools kind of look the same and teach the same way. And while there, my team was gifted six king cakes. They're cakes that are given out around Mardi Gras, They're rainbow colored, they have sprinkles on them. They're pretty delicious, they're like big cinnamon rolls. But hidden inside of each cake is this little figurine. Some people argue it's baby Jesus, some people say it's not. And if you find it, it's supposed to give you good luck, or it might give you good luck. And my crew, the four of us, decided we were gonna have a little bit of a competition to see who could find the most. A few hours before leaving, I thought I was going to leave New Orleans without any good luck charm at all. But during our last interview before heading to the airport, I found mine and and was was saved, I guess some would say. It also meant that we were able to give the last king cake to someone at the rental car agency. We returned our car instead of eating a sixth king cake. The figurine is very, very small. I mean, it's so small you could easily miss it. You might even be able to swallow it without without actually biting into it. It's plastic. It's a white little baby. (laughs) I think it would be a stretch to say that this little plastic figurine has significance to me or for me, other than reminding me of this shoot, which was my first time in Louisiana. Also this weird experience of being gifted six cakes. I mean, I I don't think that I've ever even been gifted a slice of cake in New York. The Vice Magazine podcast is a production of Vice Media. This issue is produced and edited by Tim Barnes with incredible production assistance from our intern, Shamika Lywood. For more info on the podcast or how to subscribe to the magazine, visit vice.com and be sure to leave a review for the Vice Magazine podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcast app that you use. I'm Ellis Jones, and I'd like to give a special thanks to all the voices you heard on this episode. Elizabeth Renstrom, Hassam Hussein, Jason Leopold, Chris Carroll, Ross Uffberg, Erica Allen, Lauren Oyer, and Roberto Friedman. We'll be back next month with a special themed issue about youth activism. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.